I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Mary Hughes, who is the Welsh Language Commissioner for Wales. Mary, tell us a bit about your background. Where are you from in Wales? Born in Carmarthen in 1957, daughter of a bank clerk. So most of my childhood youthful years were in West Wales. Dad had to move every three years, as they did in the bank in those times. Born in Carmarthen and then moved to Llechrid, which is outside Cardigan. Moved from there to Llandailo, which is now home. And then moved to Fishgard when I was 11 years old. And family settled there then, so I went to secondary school in Fishgard and went from there then to Aberystwyth and then on to Oxford. And I suppose in many, many ways Fishgard was quite influential in terms of creating me because it was um, a strange community where the Irish influence was very, very strong, but also the Welsh language had, had really retreated into the countryside. You know, not many people spoke Welsh in Fishgard itself. But for you, Welsh language was the language of the home? Yes, we spoke Welsh at home. Uh, my parents were both from Llandysil area, one from Pentracourt, one from Hentland. So they, they were very, very definitely Welsh speakers. Had at a certain period of time before we were born as children spoken English to each other, uh, as they did in the 1950s, the post-war period when they met, but made a very conscious decision when we came into the world that they would speak Welsh at home, and, and Welsh was the natural language at home. When did you become aware of Welsh as a political issue, if you like? Interestingly, I would say that Fishgard created the Welsh language activist because the school I attended, Fishgard County Secondary School, was particularly, particularly alien towards the language. Ironically, because DJ Williams had been an English teacher there. He taught my father. Did he indeed? Mm. And I knew DJ well as someone who would be selling the Welsh nation outside Dad's bank. And when it rained, he went to sit in the bank with my father. So uh, there had been real influences in that school, but it, it, it wasn't part of the culture when I was there. And that made me very determined as a young person that my language should be recognised. I do remember we moved there from Llandailo to Fishgard as I started secondary school and someone asking me whether I felt I would be in any way disabled by the fact that my lang- my first language was Welsh. And if I felt that I was disabled, that they could give me help, which really, really annoyed me as an 11-year-old. Certainly contributed to creating the person who then became active with Cymdeithas Riaith in my teenage years, in both in school and afterwards. So I would imagine that when you went to Aberystwyth, what were you studying there? Law and politics. It was a bit of a hotbed for um, Welsh language activism, I imagine, was it? It was a good time. I went up in, in 1975, and it was the time when we were talking about having a Welsh television channel. We had the Blind Ploive case, the, the conspiracy case. We spent a lot of time with road signs in various places in our rooms. So... Very, very, very active, but also not only active in terms of language politics at the time, the whole area of rights politics was really, really alive in Aberystwyth. The Anti-Nazi League was was beginning its work. 
Um, so it was there's a lot of activity, and I came from a household, albeit that Dad was in the bank. My mother was an incredible radical, so she was very very active at CND. That was was already in my blood as a young person going up to Aberystwyth to the, to a place where that was wonderfully nurtured, brilliantly nurtured. Um, I didn't spend much time in in lectures, but uh, spent a lot of time protesting and in the Cymdeithas Reith offices. What was the most illegal thing that you did? I don't think I can tell you that. (laughs) Because I I was in court. You weren't averse to breaking the law? No. Although you never obviously engaged in any violent activity? No, 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 certainly not. The first term I was there, three weeks before Christmas, we occupied Rhyd, which at the time was an empty village outside Porthmadog. We occupied, oh, 10, 12 of the holiday homes that first Christmas. So I, before going home, I was in court in Blainefestinjog, charged with criminal damage. And uh, there's still some ITV footage, which is shown every so often, of me climbing over a gate as I came out of the holiday home. Yes, it was part of, of me from the beginning. It was fairly cold Christmas going home to having been arrested in my first term, um, albeit that Mam probably agreed with me, but uh, yes, I broke the law. Yes. Are you proud of that? Yes, it was to a purpose. We've seen change as a consequence of that. You know, that ultimately led into the 1993 Welsh Language Act. It led definitely into establishing Espadorec, and I was chair of, of Cymdeithas Reith when S4C was established, when Espadorec was established. So, yes, civil disobedience to a purpose is something I would actively encourage where it's necessary. But you weren't... Were you ever a member of Plaid Cymru? No, I don't think I ever, ever have been. I think I've got a badge, but I'm not certain that I've ever been a member. Because no. you were the Labour Party... I, yes, I've been a member of the Labour Party on and off since my days in Oxford. I think what attracted me to the Labour Party at that time was the breadth of its interest in rights issues and also a very, very, very clear statement that I was opposed to Margaret Thatcher and her conservatism. So it, it, was, it appealed because of that. And I think, I suppose, in... Not that as a commissioner, I'm not supposed to be political, but I'm still a socialist. The blood that runs through my veins is, is both socialist and feminist. And yet most of the people who were involved with you in Cymdeithas of Life would have probably been plied activists as well. Was, what was it that sort of pulled you back from that, do you think? I don't think it was pulled back. I think it, it was being interested in politics and i think that made a difference as well because i was studying it as well on a day-to-day basis just being a- attracted by socialism in itself and the labor party at that time best reflecting that that interest um and and certainly certainly um the minor strike just just strengthened that belief that if I was to be involved in one political party, at that time it had to be a party that was opposing what was happening to the miners and to other working class communities. And for me, that was the Labour Party. And yet there were those who would say that the Labour Party wasn't 
always unequivocally in favour of the Welsh language, and there were many people in the Labour Party who were positively against it. Certainly, I think if you look at the history of, of the Labour Party in Wales, and you could argue in Westminster, they haven't always been the most active of supporters of the language. But that's a challenge, that's part of the challenge, and, and actually part of the debate. So what did you study at Oxford? I was supposed to be coming a solicitor. That was certainly what, what Dad thought I was doing. However, I, there was a slight problem in that I had a civil disobedience record, I had a criminal record. So at the point where I left Aberystwyth, when I approached the Law Society to actually look at being registered for my next stage of study, I was told that it would be a good idea if I went away for a year and considered and and just gave myself a gap of a year when I wasn't um, involved in any sort of criminal activities. So at that point, I was offered a place at Oxford at uh, the Department of Social Studies in Little Clarendon Street to study social studies and then to train to be a social worker. So I studied with Halsey, Heath and Ridge, who at the time were... They were the people involved in uh, collecting data on British social trends. So um, I went and studied there in a very wonderful, rarefied atmosphere, very socialist rarefied atmosphere, and then became trained to be a social worker. Uh, but there was a stage, wasn't there, when you became an academic? I, I don't think anybody's ever called me an academic, um, and I wouldn't call myself an academic. After becoming a social worker and spent some years as a social worker, um, I started a life as a social worker at 23, which is far too young to be a social worker. I was a community social worker in North Wales, in Skibargoch and Carnarvon, and then went on to be a regular social worker and was invited that time to start teaching at Colleague Normal to teach courses on social administration and public administration. And that's where I moved over into... Hardly academia, because I've always been involved in vocational training, essentially. And I think, ultimately, you reached a dizzy height at Bangor University of uh, some... What was, the, what was the title you had? I was Pro-Vice-Chancellor. Pro-Vice-Chancellor, that's right. How did you get that job, then? One could argue serendipity. I moved from my first teaching job at Colic Normal to teach at Newport, Newport College of Higher Education, as it was then. And again teaching social welfare law to potential social workers, became head of health and social care there, which was a very, very, very small department, so it didn't actually mean much, and then moved from there to Dublin City University, where I was involved, I was in the academic office. Um, so I'd went, gone over the fence from teaching into management, and then came back to Bangor as head of lifelong learning, which was the old extramural where we took lecturers out into communities and brought people into the university who would never have thought they'd, they'd come into a university. And then, as I became head of lifelong learning and eventually became Provost Chancellor, the responsibility for the Welsh language and external engagement, which is not an academic position, but certainly uh, a university position. So we're getting into the 90s now, are we? We're in the 90s, yes. Because then... You eventually became the chair of the Welsh Language Board. That would be... 2004. 2004. Yes. At the same time, I was at Bangor University and I was Provost Chancellor and also, yes, chair of the Welsh Language Board. 
And let me tell you, I remember receiving a telephone call from a very excited Plaid Cymru politician, uh, one who is now in a very prominent position in Plaid Cymru, who thought that he'd got evidence of a significant scandal which related to your appointment as chair of the Welsh Language Board. And this was all about the, the marking that went on at the time when the allegation was that the um, culture minister at the time had somehow fiddled the job for you at somebody else's expense because you were a Labour Party member. What was your view of that row at the time, uh, Mary? It's, it's fascinating because as I've come to the end of my period now as commissioner, I've been throwing newspapers out that I've carried with me for the past decades and found those front pages of the Western Mail of pictures of myself and Alan Pugh and, and the allegations. The case was referred to the Director of, of Public Appointments and she went through a process of looking at the process, what had occurred. It's ironic in a, in a way because I'd never ever met Alan Pugh in my life until the day when I was appointed so I'd, I, I wasn't aware of him as a person and I don't think he was that aware of me. It was a difficult start for that role and there we are, it was, it was scrutinised and she decided that I would remain in, in position. But it was, as they say in Welsh, bedith tan. It was a, a way of starting where you realise this is such a political appointment, this is such a public appointment, and anything associated with the, with the Welsh language is going to be contentious. Baptism of fire. Yes. At that time... I suppose the narrative that was coming from Plaid was that because you were a Labour Party member, you were going to be some sort of patsy for the Labour government. Now, I think it's probably fair to say, looking at the history of your um, occupying the role that you had then and then as the Welsh Language Commissioner afterwards, that it would be difficult to sustain the argument that you were no more than a party patsy. When you got into the role, what did you bring to it in terms of your attitude towards what you wanted to achieve? I think what I really, really wanted to achieve, I'd never, ever lost that belief that language rights sit within that breadth of human rights. And you can't deny one set of rights by supporting another. And and that remains very, very important to me. We need to recognise people's rights in their full breadth, not just look at linguistic rights. And I hope I brought some of that thinking with me to the work of Burdareth, Cymraeg, the Welsh Language Board. I think one of the things which really strengthened my resolve very early on was Rodri Morgan's decision that he was going to burn the Quangos. And I could find no political justification for that in any shape or form because I actually believed that the Welsh Language Board was achieving what it could within the 1993 legislation. So that's, you know, that fired me as well to go through an exercise of actually looking at what we were achieving and were we achieving, what we were seeking, what we were seeking to achieve and were we achieving it. And uh, being very, very focused in the way we worked as an organisation, the Welsh Language Board. One thing that strikes me, and there are recurrent stories like this, that there are 
individuals who are in workplaces, usually the private sector, who actually come in for a lot of difficulty because they want to um, work through the medium of Welsh. And there are still these stories that crop up on quite a regular basis. You know, it's not happening every week, but there has been a constant succession of these stories where there are uh, companies uh, largely uh, based in England who come into Wales and seem to think that they don't have any kind of obligation towards the Welsh language and that the Welsh language is some sort of inferior means of communication that it's wrong that the workforce should be using during the course of their working day. Why do you think that is a persistent problem, Mary? The one thing I welcome, and I do not welcome any of those incidents, but I am so glad that they're starting to come out into the public arena, because I would argue that that has been happening for decades and for centuries that people working within organisations, public sector, private sector, that the the norm in terms of communication was English, that Welsh was not seen to be a language used in the workplace. So I think what is emerging with these cases, and we are seeing them on a fairly regular basis now, is that what has be, what was a norm is now being seen as unacceptable. I am glad to see those cases starting to emerge. So they can be challenged in open forum. They can be challenged in open debate as to is this appropriate or not. So we have had the cases that have come through of various sports retailers, etc., care homes. Um, but I'm in one way, I'm pleased that we're starting to hear about it rather than it being a hidden phenomenon because it's not acceptable and it's not acceptable in terms of the legislation we have at the moment. Welsh is an official language in Wales. People have a right to use the language in the workplace and to communicate with each other through the Welsh language. So when I see those complaints, my heart sinks, but my head tells me that it is very, very good that they are coming to light and we can deal with them. It does seem that quite a lot of these companies, when they're coming into Wales, are completely ignorant about their legal obligations. Why hasn't anyone told them before they get here? One thing as Welsh Language Commissioner we, I have done and we have done is we have, over the past year, spent a fair bit of time, as much time as we can afford in a small organisation, talking to leaders of business, also talking to heads of charitable sector organisations who have also been lacking in this context, talking to them on a Welsh level, increasingly talking to them on an UK level. We had a session in London three weeks ago targeted at uh, heads of business in London who have business who operate in Wales. Setting it out very, very clearly, it's an official language. You may not have statutory duties placed upon you, but there are certainly expectations of you working within Wales in terms of what you offer to the public, but also the way you operate as an organisation, where you will have to recognise that we have two languages um, and they are both to be treated equally in the workplace. In terms of the transition that took place when you moved from being chair of the Welsh Language Board to Welsh Language Commissioner, 
Would you say that in the latter role you've had considerably more power than was the case before? And, um, and how have you sought to exercise it? With seven years' reflection, I would say that the powers associated with the Welsh Language Commissioner as a consequence of the legislation we had in 2011 are far, far, far more robust than anything the Welsh Language Board had in terms of powers under the 1993 legislation. Essentially, what uh, the Welsh Language Board had was advisory powers. I do have regulatory powers. The main challenge I've had, I would say, is establishing that regulatory regime. No organisation likes to be regulated, so there's been a lot of work in terms of working with Welsh Government, local authorities and organisations coming into standards to, for them to realise why they have to comply, how they comply and what the outcome is. And I think that's quite important for me, that it has to be compliance for a purpose. This isn't about ticking a box. This is about ensuring that people in Wales can live their lives to the extent they want to through the medium of Welsh. So services are delivered because people want to use services through the medium of the Welsh language, the language of their choice. So I've sought to do three things, really, to establish that regulatory regime uh, to ensure compliance, to create an awareness of why that's important, um, because I do believe that organisation is, we have a duty in a way to explain the context, and then to promote the use of those services. And that promotion is a challenge because we are actually uh, working against decades and centuries of non-expectation amongst Welsh speakers that they can use the language in anywhere, anywhere except the chapel and possibly the shop down the road. We are having to change hearts and minds on both sides in terms of organisations, but also giving people the confidence that they can actually use the language. So there are so many aspects to operating those powers that I've been given. And I have to say, we've only just started. You know, this is seven years. This is the first seven years. I'm so pleased that a second commissioner has been appointed. Because it looked as if that wasn't going to happen. Certainly uh, for the past two years, until some five weeks ago, there were real, real concerns that the whole structure would be changed again. That was premature. There was no evidence to support that change I couldn't see rhyme or reason, and I wasn't seeing the evidence that there was rhyme or reason for that change. So we have the same legislation, we have a new commissioner, because I can see the challenges for the next period as well. It's about embedding those standards and making those standards real in our daily lives, but also creating that confidence amongst Welsh language speakers, Welsh language learners, and those who don't speak the language at the moment, that this is part of their day-to-day existence. How much kickback have you experienced from some of these public bodies? Uh, Because I know that um, some local authorities weren't very happy about what you were asking them to do and were saying at a time of austerity, this is um, putting an extra burden on us that we can't afford. How have you reacted to that kind of um, attitude? Local authorities came under standards in March 2016, and I would say that the period leading up to that was one of the most challenging periods at that stage, embryonic organisation. Real, real, real challenge from local authorities as separate entities. And 
I think we learned a lot of lessons in that period because the one thing I think I would have done differently is spend far more time talking and explaining alongside placing those standards on those organisations. Since March 2016, we've worked very, very closely with leaders, chief executives of local authorities, with Welsh Government, the National Parks, that first group. And I have to say, those chief executives who were not quite sworn enemies of, you know, or declared themselves as sworn enemies of mine, are now my chief advocates. When I have an organisation or a local authority like Pranatha Canontav or Merthyr being seriously um, proud of what they've achieved in terms of not only complying with the standards but going a step further and starting to try and create a bilingual workplace. When they tell me that they're proud of what they've achieved, I can see the beginnings of success and culture change. I should have spoken more to them at that early period. As we've moved on, because by now we have the police forces are operating under standards, uh, further education colleges, universities, the big, big uh, Welsh organisations, the National Library, the National Museums, etc., Cyfoeth Naturiol, National Resources Wales. We've engaged from the very, very beginning. So I learned a lesson there about uh, it's good to talk. I think back in 2014 it was that you actually took a high court case, didn't you, against the National Savings and Investments, which was quite an important thing to do, wasn't it? Because it's a UK government body that was seeking to end its Welsh language scheme. I mean, if they'd succeeded in that, that would have been a devastating blow, wouldn't it, to the Welsh language? So you felt that you had no alternative but to challenge it. And the fact that they were seeking to do that when, as it turned out, they didn't have the legal power to do that, was perhaps indicative of a mindset within Whitehall, which was anti-Welsh language. Have you encountered that much? I, I think Whitehall is a combination of not understanding the Welsh language, not understanding anything which is not monolingualism. And I think that, that is characteristic of, of a lot of Westminster government. That's the norm. That's what we all do. There was also, yeah, there was opposition, and, and certainly NS and I felt that they were empowered to challenge us, and did. And I had a choice at that point of of allowing that to happen and hope that nobody else noticed that they were challenging and that we'd let them be, or take them on. And we sought quite hard to get them to change their minds. They refused, so. I decided I didn't have much choice. We had to go to judicial review to question their right, legal right to do this. On reflection, looking back, it's a far bigger decision than I was aware of at the time. I was aware it's a huge decision. Uh, but on reflection, you realise, wow, that was quite brave of you, actually. So we did take them on, and luckily we were successful Interestingly as well, it was the first judicial review undertaken through the medium of Welsh ever by a judge who was listening to the case on simultaneous translation and has since then used that as an example of how bilingualism works well in the courts. He really enjoyed the experience and has been and has commended it since. That was it was 
an interesting, interesting experience. And had it gone not in our favour, well, that would have been disastrous, but it didn't. You do have the power to fine organisations. You haven't used that power, I don't think, have you? Why is that? We have, we have an enforcement policy which is based on escalation. So it's a case of working your way up that ladder, that escalating ladder of of powers and we have not got to the point yet where we need to use that at the moment we are still using enforcement powers which is requiring organizations to change their practice within a period of time i can envisage that within the next seven years uh, situations will arise where that escalation has got to the point where the new commissioner will need to find possibly or the next commissioner will need to refer cases into the court system because that is the next step as well. You know, we could seek injunction through civil courts. So what sort of scenarios are we talking about there, potentially? I would see that as being persistent non-compliance, you know, an organisation that just sticks its head entirely in the sand and, and refuses. We're not seeing that yet coming through. We're certainly not seeing that coming through. Or something which is so onerous in terms of a person's quality of life or impact on an individual that that was required. So we haven't got to that point yet. And we're far from that yet. But I can envisage that happening, possibly. I'd hope it didn't. But the powers are there if that were to occur. Now, the private sector, to a degree, is outside the provisions of um, Welsh language legislation. Um, however, I think that mobile phone companies are probably within it. You haven't sought to regulate them? Not yet. Within the legislation, a whole series of sectors are named and we've worked our way step by step by step through those sectors and I've mentioned some of them already. We've, we've done the police forces now, we've done post-16 education. Two years ago we got to a point where we had undertaken the preparatory work for social housing, for public transport, buses, trains in Wales for energy sector in Wales, the post office, the some of the old utilities, and as a consequence of the white paper being published by Alan Davis, the minister, we got to a point where nothing was being processed in terms of standards. So we'd done the preparatory work. It's the actual it's government that actually introduces the standards because it's a statutory process. They have to present them on the floor of the Senate and there has to be a vote. We've done the preparatory work for a whole series of sectors that hasn't been processed. So we decided we weren't doing any more preparatory work until the log jam was shifted. So I can I hope that with the statement that the legislation will remain and the minister has said the standards the standards process will start again, we'll see the standards for social housing, which are desperately needed, coming through and The other sectors, the trains, buses, energy, and then once we see that starting to move, we can do the preparatory work or 
The next commissioner can do the preparatory work on telecommunications. And there's another sector that I, I'm really interested in, those organisations that receive more than £400,000 worth of public funding. And that opens the door for a whole host of organisations. But no, it was, it was a decision I made that we, had to, we couldn't create more logjam. Welsh Government wasn't moving things forward. So we were wasting energy. So that's why we haven't got to, to telecommunications. It'll happen. And I hope £400,000 worth of, of public funding will also trigger some standards. Yes, because obviously the Welsh Government has got targets for uh, having a million Welsh speakers by, what is it, 2050? 2050. And that's quite a bold target. But in order to reach it, you have to have a situation, don't you, where people can uh, live their lives through the medium of Welsh. And while clearly a significant part can be in the public sector, the private sector is immensely important in terms of um, people's shopping, uh, all kinds of transactions which they get involved with on their daily basis. So would you like there to be a situation where the law is extended beyond what is there potentially at the moment into a situation where all private sector companies above a certain size, for example, were obliged to provide services through the medium of Welsh? I certainly think that in the next few years, two, three years, there has to be an active discussion about can we extend the measure to start to impact on the private sector. I suppose the one sector I see as being critical and immediate is the banking sector because essentially it is a public service, it's a service we all use, whether it be over-the-counter, although you're lucky to find a counter these days, or online or on the phone. And it's interesting, the work we've done with the banking sector, and we've done a lot of work with the banking sector over the past three, four years, many of them say they would welcome standards because they're a regulated industry. They do understand the notion of regulation. And many of them have said, if there were standards, we'd comply. Which begs the question, why why don't they offer the services anyway? And they do, they they seek to, but that would lead to action in that sector. And that may be true of other sectors as well. And I think there has to be that debate. And inevitably, I'd say, probably after the next Assembly elections, that that sort of discussion needs to be put on the table. You just look at, at sectors, particularly, as you say, the large, large sectors, retail sectors. Why not have basic standards placed upon them? I mean, the thing is that uh, there are lots of countries, um, some in Europe, for whom bilingualism is um, obvious and uh, has existed for many years, and Belgium, to name but one. Uh, And yet, from some private sector employers' organisations, there is considerable kickback, saying you're placing extra burden on business and that sort of stuff. Is it unreasonable to expect them to provide Welsh language services in communities where people speak Welsh? Of course, I don't consider that to be unreasonable. As you say, it is a norm throughout Europe. It's a norm increasingly in America, where services are delivered in at least two languages. It's been interesting working with one bank specifically, 
with Santander, who, when we first started working with the banking sector, were comparatively new in Wales. And they started attending our seminars we work, when we work with the banking sector. And they very, very quickly said, well, we need to get our ATMs sorted out in Wales. We've got bilingual ATMs across Europe, you know, Spanish, Catalan, English is normal for us. We'll see what we need to do to introduce Welsh. And they they have introduced Welsh onto their ATMs. And they've introduced it in a way that the machine will recognise your first choice of language. So if, if you've chosen Welsh, it'll always recognise as you put your card in that it, you want to deal with them in Welsh. And their figures are interesting because in the first six months of operation, they had 5,000 Welsh users in North Wales. They had another 5,000 Welsh users in South Wales. And they had 40,000 Welsh users outside Wales. That's intriguing, isn't it? It is absolutely intriguing. And for me, just strengthens that economic argument that this is an opportunity. So I see no legal or rights issue against companies working in Wales, working bilingually, but I can also see economic benefit to them. Because it has been said, hasn't it, in the past, I remember reading stories over the years that um, a lot of Welsh speakers have not chosen to use the Welsh language at ATMs. Why, why do you think there has been that resistance? I don't think it's resistance. I think it, it's, it's individuals being challenged by a choice that they have not had in the past, and it's that need to switch in the head that this is normal. I've always dealt with this ATM through the medium of English and I will continue to do so because that is what feels safe for me. That's normal practice. So I think it's it's not resistance, it's recognising that it can be quite challenging to change practices of a lifetime and work with that encouragement, making it obvious that the service is there to start with and that it is safe and uses to be encouraged and I suppose as well that element of consistency yes this is normal. In terms of the general acceptance of the Welsh language in Wales I think the usual narrative would be that it's much more accepted now than it may have been some decades ago and yet there do remain people on social media there remain often English celebrities who make some very disparaging comments what is it about people who are from Wales who have a down on the Welsh language? If I need the answer to that question, it would be much easier to challenge them. I think certainly we've, we've seen incidents, as you've mentioned, of individuals speaking without clear understanding of what they're saying. Some, unfortunately, do have a clear understanding of what they're saying. And we still see that resistance. We see it in letters in the Western Mail. We still see those letters coming through in the Western Mail. And I think when we see it, it needs to be challenged and questioned. And if it's a case of education, that you offer that education. And if it's a case of absolute resistance, you just say that is not acceptable in the same way that any phobia of any nature is not acceptable. Now, you're coming to the end of your term going to walk off into the sunset. What, what, what have you got uh, lined up next, Mary? I'm not walking off into any sunsets yet. Technically, I'm coming to the end of my formal working life, which is a very, very strange notion for me because I, I can't believe I've got to that age. I'm looking for opportunities. I desperately want to do more travel. That's something I love. 
catching trains and planes, I adore. I would really, and I do hope that I will be able to continue working and, and use some of the experience I've had over the past, well, my working life, but certainly the last seven years and the last 10, 15 years of association with uh, the Welsh Language Board to actually use some of those skills in another setting. Uh, you do learn a lot in this job about dealing with people and dealing with politicians and dealing with structures, but also about how you try and create or contribute to creating change in society. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.